All right, so um, it is the uh, Independence Day weekend. And so uh, it is just uh, anytime we come up on, on a holiday, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, reflecting on the original meaning of the holiday and what it's become and whether or not it, it lines up with each other. And, um, you know, the, this is a celebration, a commemoration of uh, when uh, the founding fathers, as we call them, um, adopted the Declaration of Independence, and that was on July 4th, 1776. And, um, and so this theme of freedom is, or independence has been going through my mind, just racing through my mind all week, and um, I realized that um, concerning freedom, you can be f- in the land of freedom, but be bound, and you can be in a land where there's no freedom, and be free. And we were talking uh, two weeks ago in the Ten Commandments about having no idols and making no, no, forming no idols, not from the sea or from the land, and making sure that we don't do that, and making sure that we don't um, worship other things. But I, I don't want to gloss over that. So today what I wanted to do is, at the beginning, and this video will do it for me, I want to highlight how easy it is to make an idol and how quickly an idol will turn on you and so quickly becomes something that owns you instead of something that you own. And so, gentlemen, if you could play that video. Oh, no, not gentlemen. We got Mercy back there, another one of our interns. Gentlemen and Mercy. It's like the day for the Hermes. To... even watched it three times this morning so I wouldn't so I wouldn't cry I um in 2009 I uh I was on staff at the church and I wasn't in a ministry role yet and I saw this video for the first time and it and it did what it did to me right now, right? Um, I watch it several times a year to remind myself why I'm in ministry. And um, the reality is it might not be that ugly and that obvious in your own life or in the life of your neighbor, but the truth and the reality, the spiritual reality is the same. The Bible teaches us in Galatians 5.1 that it was for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We can be We can celebrate being in a free land and still be slaves in our mind. We can come to church and still be enslaved in our hearts. The Hebrews, when they left Egypt, the Hebrew people, they they came out and God delivered them 
in a miraculous way. And he destroyed Pharaoh's army behind them so that they would be completely free. And when they came up on a hard time, their response each time was, it'd be better for us to be slaves. Did you bring us out of slavery to kill us? Is that why you set us free? Is that why you brought us out of this? So that you could kill us here in the desert and make, you know, in, in, in dispatch of us with, without any evidence? Is that why you set us free from Pharaoh so that we could die and nobody would ever know and we'd never be remembered? Is that what it is? Because in their hearts and minds, they were still enslaved. They were still held captive by Pharaoh and his army in their soul. I want to point out a couple of things about the video. It's going to be a relatively short message, but I want to say that Jesus in this video was never incapable of saving. It'd be easy to watch the video and see this woman tied up by all of these forces and feel like, why is Jesus standing off? Why, is, why, why couldn't he just step in and, and save her and rescue her early on? And he, he could have what he waits for is a desperate cry from you and me. Amen. He waits for a desperate surrender. He waits for a declaration of dependence. Where all I want, all I need is you, God. I I refuse to try this on my own. I will not find comfort and hope and peace and joy and and satisfaction and fulfillment in anything else any longer, God. I find it in you alone. I need you. Like the song, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. A declaration of dependence, of surrender, saying, God, I'm done. Doing it on my own, in my own way, by my own form, by my own pattern. I want to follow you. I'm going to let you do this instead of me. The actors personified some of the most powerful idols of our time and probably of every time because the human nature, our human nature hasn't changed over time. People like to say that humanity has advanced and evolved and and grown past. And we like to think of the people in Scripture as being archaic or ancient or caveman in their their understanding and their life and their passions and their desires. And we we attribute to them kind of like an animal-like kind of existence. But we learn in Scripture, thankfully, that the the things, the idols, the struggles, even the, the expression of their, their lust and their greed and their perversion is not much different than ours. We just turn it up with a little bit of technology. Ours is just spread onto the internet. It's spread onto video. It's faster. It moves. We hear about more. We can, we can talk about other people anonymously, and they weren't able to do that then. But they did. Just not on the... The web, right? Not in the scale that we're able to do it. Here are some of the uh, some of the idols and the lie nested in them. We see immediately that she's wooed away from the presence of God by romance. 
Now, gentlemen, just because you haven't been wooed away by a handsome fella with a rose in his mouth doesn't mean that <laughs> you're not guilty of falling victim to romance. I mean, from the time that a kid is, is young, they're going to see teen dramas and teen songs. And, and I mean, all cable access is, all cable has done for us has allowed us to uh, play more of the same story over and over. Now, middle schoolers are deeply in love and Romeo and Juliet, just, you know, at a middle school level. And I don't know why we aspire toward Romeo and Juliet as our evidence for anything. Yeah, they die. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, what are we doing? There's no, like, redeeming value in this story. Idiot, you know? But it's like, but I like him. I love him. And it's like, but I love her. She's my everything. You know, it's like, just wait a year. <laughs> I'm so glad I waited a year with a lot of the infatuations that I had. I was so hesitant about my infatuation with my now wife. I waited a year and a half. I went to, I went to one of the pastors. I was like, hey, I got a thing for Megan Stibbards. And I can't shake it. And he's like, what do you want to do? Nothing. I felt this way before. And it was foolish. So I don't trust me. So I'm just... <laughs> JC said, praise God. That's the voice of an elder. I don't trust me. I'm going to wait. And he looked at me kind of like, yeah, right. And then I waited. I waited a year and a half. And then I went back and I was like, hey, I don't like her anymore. I love her. And he's like, what you going to do about it? So I'm going to try and marry her. So I took her out on a date. This time, we'd, we'd hung out in groups, took her on a date, and I was like, Megan, I'd, I'd love to hang out with you, you know, and well, it was like a week and a half, right? It was like a week and a half away. So it was January 15th. Hey, I want to hang out with you. January 25th, uh, I want to hang out with you. I want to take you out. And, and she goes, okay, great. I'll pencil it in. I was like, nah, put this one in pen. You know, I got, I got some bad advice in the process. They said, look at her like you, like you, like you love her now. Go ahead and let, her, let it leak a little bit, but don't say anything. That was a bad recipe. <laughs> Stressful. I found out after the fact. She thought I was taking her to say that I liked her friend. So, womp womp. I'll talk about the first date another time. I, I killed it. God even made it snow for me. Yeah, took her to Blues Alley. I'll just, all right, it's your fault, whoever said, come on. We're going to go like four minutes long. Um, took her to Blues Alley, you know, I, which symbolized all the money that I had. <laughs> you know, you got to pay for the, the concert and then you got to pay for the food and the food ain't cheap. And so we sit down and, and because there was a, there was a forecast for snow and I'm like, I'm going on this date. I said in pen. So I took her anyway. And we got basically a private, a private concert at Blues Alley with these guys dressed like the Temptations, you know, like, you know, so like we were the only ones there and they were in these red velvet suits. And, you know, so like I got her a private concert and, you know, I don't know if I talked to you the whole way in. Did I say anything? No, because I was nervous because... I wasn't sure what to say. And so we sit down to eat. And all that came out was, I want to marry you. (laughs) 
but I think we should date first. <laughs> Not smooth, but up front, I was clear. And, um, and I don't know what happened in her mind, but uh, she didn't say no about the dating. So, uh, and then we got married or, or engaged six months later, five months later, June 18th, married on November 20th. Um, and uh, anyway, so, but romance, underneath it is the idol of significance. And that's why a crush is so much fun. Because for a short period of time, that person becomes your significance, don't they? And it's the dream of what's possible in that relationship, isn't it? And it's this imaginary life that you create for yourselves in this crush phase where it's like, oh, it's going to be wonderful. You know, their breath's not going to stink. We're always going to have enough money. Nobody's ever going to get sick. You know, it's going to be wonderful. And that's what the crush phase is for. You're like, man, that, that person, they don't have any problems in their life. Right? Facebook, it's like a series. If you scroll through Facebook, you have a series of crushes with other people's lives. That's what's so dangerous about it is that you go on it and you see this family, you know, on this perfect vacation, and you're like, oh, they've got no problems at all. The weather's probably awesome, and they have enough money, and they're obviously not having any trouble. And, and man, they're so in love with you. Look how happy everybody is. Man, they're nothing like me. I'm sad. I don't know what's happening. I, man, we're, we have a tough life, and it's hot outside. <laughs> right? But this life online, and you see it, and it looks perfect, and, and you're like, I want, the, I want the significance that they have. And so there's this lust and this allure of the idol of significance that we look for in romance. And that, my friends, is the risk in romance and the idol that's hidden in it. We should find our significance in none other than Jesus. If you want to feel significant and be significant, no, look, look no further than the one who died for you so that you could experience fullness of life, so that you could experience freedom. The one that can heal you from sickness and disease, not just come alongside of you in it. The one that can promise you eternal life and not just a flame. Then we see the personification of money. She looked desperate and, and pathetic in her pursuit of that money, didn't she? Chasing around and the guys waving the money around. And, but in money we see a desire for self-sufficiency. In this pursuit of money, we see this desire that, or this, this need for us to make it and for us to make it on our own and for us to be okay and for us to source ourselves with the things that we need. You might not ever look on the outside as desperate as that girl did jumping around and picking up money off the ground. You might not look ever as desperate if you've ever seen money thrown from a rooftop and people scrambling for it. You might not ever look that desperate on the outside. And you might think that because you don't look that way on the outside that you're okay. You might even, in our area in this time, risk thinking that you're better off than the person who's chasing and clamoring after money. Because you aren't on the outside. But the reality is this idol of money and this idol of self-sufficiency is oh so tempting and it's hardly ever revealed until you're facing the end of your job or you're facing a couple flat tires or a car repair, which comes so faithfully, or the tax bill. <laughs> Why they got to be taking my money? You know, 
or the person stands up to do an offering message. And why is the church obsessed with money? We don't ask that question about Beyonce and Jay-Z. We don't ask that question about the artists who talk about it more than we do. So if we don't offer a counter worldview, then it's a disservice to all of us. It doesn't hurt my feelings personally if you don't, if you, if you're, if you don't experience generosity, if you don't experience the life of generosity. We offer lots of opportunity in lots of different ways so that, but, but my heart breaks for what you miss out on. Does that make sense? So the church isn't obsessed with money in the sense that we need it. And if you don't give it, we're mad at you. The church is obsessed in that I want to make sure that you have a right understanding and money holds the right place in your heart and your mind because it so quickly and so easily becomes a God or minimally an idol to you. And the case could be made that an idol is just a God, just one that you made. So that idol of self-sufficiency. And we see alcohol escape the idol of comfort. So with the alcohol, she's like, this all hurts so bad. Money didn't, romance didn't satisfy me. Money didn't satisfy me. Let me just numb the pain. Let me just hide from it. Now, you might not find your comfort in alcohol or drugs, but you might find it in ESPN. You could find it on hours after hours after hours online or scrolling your iPad or searching the internet for something to give you comfort or minimally just to numb the pain of right now or to numb the pain of what's coming. This idol of comfort will drive you to do things that you never expected to do because it it starts right here and then it promotes gradually because what used to provide comfort no longer provides comfort. Same with money. What used to be enough is no longer enough. What used to make you secure won't make you secure anymore because you've always got, you know, what's next? Medical bills or college or the car is going to break down in six years. So I better get ready because my car is going to, you know, die. It's going to be too old. I'm going to have to get a new car in six years. So let me stress about that today (laughs) because someday my car is not going to be able to run. But what was enough here isn't enough there. And the same is true for comfort. What once comforted no longer comforts. But that's why the Holy Spirit is also called the comforter. He is to be our ultimate comfort, our ultimate comforter. And so when Jesus was with the disciples, he had spent a couple of years with them. He's like, guys, I'm going to have to leave. I got to peace out. But this is better than you think it is. I know you're going to miss me. I know that you want me around. I know you don't want me to leave. But it's better that I leave because one greater than me is coming. I'm going to send the comforter and he's going to be with you forever. It's not a promise to take away pain. It's not a promise to take away hurt. But it's, it's, it's a promise that he's going to comfort you all the way through it. And he's going to be with you forever. I've talked about my comfort that I found. In, so it's like, okay, well, great. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do these things. I'm good. God, I'm better than everybody else who struggles. And then I struggled with online stuff. And then God set me free from that. And so, well, I'm better than that. Let me just eat my way to comfort. Let me just <laughs> nachos. <laughs> I have talked about it, but it, because it's funny, but it's, it's painfully true. But I would, I would eat nachos almost every night. I would hide my nachos. 
I would, I would make it on paper plates because if you bake the cheese on the plate, you know, you got to put it in the sink or in the dishwasher. And I knew Megan would see it. She'd see the cheese, the hard cheese still stuck on there or the grease or like the, the you know, a piece of cheese on the floor because I made them hastily. So you got to do it on a paper plate. So you throw the paper plate away and you hide the evidence. I had a problem. And it's a lighthearted version of what we do in all our other places that we find comfort in. The cover-up, the insecurity. Well, what if she finds the cheese on the floor? Did I leave cheese on the floor? Dad, she's calling me. I must not have put the cheese away. Right, Dad, she went to make something and the cheese is gone. Did I use a whole bag of cheese? One of the little ones, not the big ones. I'm not, it wasn't that bad. This idol of comfort is terrifying. Then fashion, this people-pleasing. Have you ever had the experience where you didn't do something because people told you that it wasn't cool or it was the wrong thing to do or that you met some caricature that you didn't, and you were like, oh, I don't want to identify that way. I'm going to, I want to make sure I stay relevant to you. And so I don't want to do this. I don't want to be isolated from you only to find out that they ended up doing the same thing later. I remember talking to somebody one time and they were like, you're not going to be one of those cutesy couples that puts your pictures of your family up all over the house and you can't look anywhere without it. It's like, no, of course not. Take the pictures down. that guy. Then the same people who told me that those people are awful went and did it. And I went to their house and I saw the pictures of <laughs> all over the place. And I'm like, what happened? I thought you said, but what about the rules? What about those are losers? But I was the loser in that. And when we look for other people to give us value, when we go to serve the, the fickle expectations of those around us, all that's going to change is the expectations and then you're going to be left out in the dark. You've got to change again. But there is one who is unchanging. And there is, one's expecta- there is one whose expectations don't change. And his name is Jesus. And in the Bible... He expresses these things to us in a way that we can digest. And if you ever come up against something that you don't understand, just ask. You can ask God. You can ask the Holy Spirit. Be like, God, I'm reading this. It doesn't make any sense to me. He'd be pleased to tell you what he means. If he doesn't tell you immediately by his Holy Spirit, there's a spiritual family of people called the church at large, called Grace Covenant called Grace Covenant Church locally and Grace Covenant Sterling right here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week that you can come to and say, hey, I'm reading this thing. I don't understand it. How do I process this? What does he mean about the faith of a mustard seed? What does he mean the seed falls on the path and doesn't have understanding and it gets picked up? What does it mean that a certain seed finds good soil and it grows up and it bears fruit? What fruit? What does that look like? I don't know what that looks like or what it means for a person. In this case, that parable is explained right there, right after he tells it. What's it mean to be born again? 
What's it mean, this life of freedom? What's it mean to be saved? We talk about being saved. I got saved 15 years ago. Saved from what? That's good. Saved from what? I don't know. It means uh, I felt kind of guilty. Cried a little bit during the message. I raised my hand and now I'm saved. Hallelujah. You can be in the land of the free and be bound. You can be an oppressive land and be free. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, has preached in my gospel for which I'm suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You can have boundaries and still be free. Psalm 16, 6, David says of God's limitations, he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You know, maybe instead of kicking up against the wall of the boundaries that you experience in your life, you could ask this question, God, is this from you? Is this from me or is this from man? And sometimes what you'll find is that it's actually a boundary from God. And you'll realize it's in a very pleasant place. Because not only does it keep things out, but it keeps you in. You know, we put a a fence on our yards because we love our dogs. The dog hates the fence. The dog wants to play in the street. And the fence is stupid. We're not much unlike our dogs in that way. God, I wish I was another way. I wish I could only get five hours of sleep and be more productive like those people who only get five hours of sleep. He's like, you need more sleep than that. Accept it. Or you could spend the next 50 years of your life being mad you didn't have to sleep less. Just get a good mattress and enjoy the ride, David. Right? You with me? I wish I was like that person. I wish, I wish I could get a doctorate in mathematics like Ben. Come on, Dr. Ben. I wish I had that kind of mind. I don't. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm happy if I color in the lines. And I can either be mad that I don't have a mind like Ben and, a, and an anal, uh, the ability to analyze and to think like Ben, or I can accept the way that I analyze and think of things as a boundary that was given to me by God, and I can develop what I've been given. And inside these boundaries, I can grow. Inside these boundaries, I can flourish. Inside these boundaries, the gifts that I've been given can flourish to the maximum of their ability instead of being so mad at the life that somebody else has. You with me? But I'm not, I'm not really preaching about me. You see what I'm doing? I'm talking about me because it hurts less. Because for me to say, stop it, you. <laughs> stop it. I'll go ahead and say it. Stop looking at the life of somebody else and the boundaries of somebody else and saying, God, I want those boundaries instead. And look and see, God, what boundaries have you given me? Where should I fall? Because I want them to be pleasant for me today. And then you'll find that it's easy. It's it's joyful thing. It's a welcoming thing. It's an exciting thing to welcome the boundaries of God. And then you can find contentment in all things. Because you're like, man, look what God has given me in these boundaries. This is fantastic. Look at what God has given me. 
in this spouse, in these kids, in this job, in this ability to pursue a job. In the family he's given me, in the spiritual family he's given me. You with me? When we begin to accept the boundaries of God as something that's pleasant and good and helpful to us, you'll find that your life changes, not because everything's, not because everything else changed, but because you changed in it. I've talked to several people in our congregation in the last couple of weeks. The point of pain is not for pain to stop. We want comfort. We want it to stop. But God brings pain so that he can bring change to us. The goal is change. The goal is transformation. The goal is not comfort. That's why God is pleased to hurt us. That doesn't preach very well. Not a very good amen there. We got three sick kids at home this morning. It hurts to be up all night. And they look at you and they're like, it hurts. I don't like this. Why is this happening? I'm like, I don't know. And then it's like, I heard you're stronger in the long term for getting sick now and overcoming it. But I know right now God is stretching your mommy and me. <laughs> stretching us thin. He's showing us the impatience that's on the inside of us by shaking us. I was shaking uh, an invisible water bottle just now. And water was splashing out. And so it was, a, it, was a, it was not a see-through bottle. You didn't know what was in it until I started shaking it. And then the water came out. And you're like, oh, there's water in there. I didn't know that until you shook it. That's what that <laughs> illustration. Thank you. commands of God. Some people say that religion, and maybe religion is this, but not the commands of God, which is distinct from religion. The commands of God, it's distinct in this way. Religion is basically just form and routine and uh, rigidness, right? For the sake of coming up to God as opposed to relationship or what we have in Christianity where God came down to us, right? So we use religion and systems and ceremonies and everything else. And it's like, if I'm good enough, I can build my way up to God and then he'll be pleased and he'll accept me. But in Christianity, what we have is God who came all the way down to us to live and be among us and accept us because of what he has done, not because of what we have done, right? But the commands of God have never been to control, to give a a person control over another person. It has never been to give a government control over people. In fact, Christianity is pretty terrifying if you're a government leader, Because you've got a whole lot of people who are following orders from and loving and obeying an order that is higher than you. And when you're the king of a land, you want to be the highest order. That's why the early disciples, they would say, uh, Jesus is Lord so often. Because everybody else worshiped Caesar as the God of the land. And they were like, Jesus is actually Lord. Jesus is king, not Caesar. What a terrifying thing for a government. But the goal of these commands is never to just bring people underneath the same order and structure and to get people to behave. The goal is to lead us in the direction of a relationship with Jesus so that we could be pleasing to him and, when we're, and, and so that we could experience the freedom and the fullness of life. It's not constricting. It's freeing. It's not to lock us down into this this tight place, but to show us the land that is green and the trees that are plentiful that we can eat from. I got to stop. It's a really important holiday this weekend in the United States. 
But in my satirical, sarcastic mind, it's also kind of funny. Because what we've taken the holiday to become is we call it a celebration of freedom when it was the day that was com- where we commemorate the acceptance of the Declaration of Independence, the adoption of the, de- the, the Declaration by the 13 American colonies at the Continental Congress, if you, if you care. It's not the day that freedom was owned. It was going to take years and years and bloodshed from many, many, many people. And if I had a mind like Ben's, I would have given you those numbers right now. <laughs> well, use my mind. It was bad. <laughs> Not good. Took the blood of many, many people who would give their lives so that this declaration of independence would be realized. What we have in Christianity is a God who spilled his blood so that when we declare dependence on him, the blood has already been spilled and freedom is available now. What I want to do today is an altar call for all of us. Okay? And I want today to be our declaration of dependence. Okay? And I want us to make a statement of dependence to Jesus, to God himself, and ask him to, to forgive us for our sins, to, to separate us from those sins, to sever the line, and, and thank him for the blood that was spilled so that they could never come and chase us down ever again. And just and, and step into the freedom that he died, the freedom that he died so that we, how do you say that? So that we can have the freedom that he died for us to have. Amen, you with me? So go ahead and stand up with me.